Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. I have an early release missionary. Some people like that term. Some people don't like that term. I use it just kind of factual to introduce who is going to be on the podcast. It's my friend, Frazier Perez. Welcome to the podcast, Frazier. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Frazier's 19. He grew up in Temecula, California. Some of you will know who that is. That's a beautiful part of California. Graduated from high school in 2020, then headed out on a mission. He was originally signed to Trinidad, Tobago, a port of Spain. I think that's in the Caribbean islands. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The mission encompasses a couple of different islands. So I wish we were all in the Caribbean during this winter. And that's a beautiful part of the world. I've never been to those islands. Um, but like many missionaries during COVID, was reassigned. So he was reassigned to McAllen, Texas. And we'll just talk about his experience with home MTC and then getting to Texas and then understanding he had pretty significant emotional health issues that he had to deal with kind of in private then more in a public way that led him coming home. Um, Frazier's hopes, out, you know, we'll talk about that. His hopes are um, career-wise to major in film. And um, he um, grew up in an active LDS family. He's the middle of three boys. And um, our hope is that, and prayer is that those of you that are also early release missionaries, that Frazier will have some things that will help you as you're walking a unique road. And if your parents, local leaders, or just friends wondering, how best can I support an early release missionary? What are things to say, not to say that Frazier's insight will help you? And then we can all just come together as the same human family and know we're all doing our best. And this is the reality of some experiences for some incredibly faithful LDS missionaries. Is that okay for an introduction? I I think you did it better than I could have. So, um, yeah, just usually we kind of start at the beginning. So before we do that, just tell us where you were and how you opened your call. I always like to hear this. So I'm assuming you get an email. So just walk us through that. Did you open that alone? Did you open that with family? Share a little bit about that experience for our listeners. Yeah. Um, so after I graduated high school, just like every other, um, young man who grows up in the church, I, the next step in life was a mission and I looked forward to it. And I was told my entire life I would go on a mission. Um, so I worked on my papers and about, I guess, six months after I graduated, I got my call. And so we had invited some close family friends over some great friends from high school that I grew up with. And, um, it was funny. I, I remember my brother coming up to me right before and saying like, oh, I'm so nervous for you. And like, he was more nervous than I am. I was just so sure that my mission experience would be great. Um, and we were in the living room. I opened up my phone and opened the email and clicked on the link. And it said, I'd be called to serve in the Trinidad and Tobago mission. Did you know where that was? Funny enough, no. Um, everybody thought at first I was going to Spain. Because it's the yeah, port of Spain. Right, yeah. So everybody's like, oh, congrats, you're going to Spain. But then a close family friend of ours corrected us and said, wait, no, it says Trinidad and Tobago. That's uh, very different. <laughs> um, but yeah. And what month, what year and what month did you open this call? So I opened up my call, I believe, in 2020. And I began my mission on January 6th of 2021. Did you know, I'm just trying to put in the context of COVID, as you, people when they're opening their calls now know that they 
might not go where they're assigned. Did you, yeah. is that a possibility? Where Was COVID a thing when you opened your car? Was it a, a surprise then you couldn't go there and you got reassigned? Um, it was very much a thing. Um, there was the possibility to be reassigned. It wasn't something I um, knew for sure. I actually learned about my reassignment while um, in the online MTC. Um, my stake president gave my dad a call one day and said, oh, he'll be going to McAllen, Texas for his reassignment. So that was pretty exciting. How did you feel about that? It was cool. I, I thought like, oh, awesome. I get to serve in two different parts of the world. Um, so I was really looking forward to it. And did the language change? No. So I served a Spanish speaking mission. I would have been both. Um, but I, from what I learned, Trinidad did have a couple other languages mixed in as well. So um, you're, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Home MTC, introduce that to us. How long that is you're learning a language? Um, just how long of a period of time is that at home? It was really new and different and just experimental for me and um, my entire family. Again, it was introduced around the time of COVID. So it was new across the church. I really enjoyed it actually. To my surprise, I thought I wouldn't care for it, but it was really nice um, spending a couple hours learning about um, the gospel. And then after getting to have dinner with your family, it was cool being a missionary while at home, basically. Did any signs of mental health crop up during home MTC? None at all. And that's why my entire mission experience caught me and my family very much by surprise. Other than serving my first six weeks in the MTC at home, I, I loved every, every moment of it. It was so cool to learn as much as I was learning and to make all the friends I was. And it, yeah, it was great. One of the things I'm picking up, and this is new for me, we all of our kids are post-mission age now, is the benefits to the family of Home MTC. I've talked to families just how much they love having their full-time set-apart missionary in their home and the influence for good that is on the whole family. Younger siblings, older siblings, the parents, just the spirit it brings in their home. Um, it sounds like some of that happened at the Perez home. Oh, for sure. Um, my my parents were really grateful that I was able to um, serve my first six weeks with them because, again, like you had already mentioned, just the environment and the spirit in our home was just incredible. And um, talk then about how home is, talk about then flying to your mission headquarters and being assigned to your first area. <laughs> um, so things didn't go to plan just the minute I left the home. <laughs> um, so there had been a horrible storm, um, that affected my, um, flights. So I had a layover in Dallas, but my layover turned into a, uh, week stranded in Dallas. Um, which isn't even in your mission. No, it was so not you're just connecting from California to McAllen. Is there, were you flying into McAllen? Yeah. So and then the layover was in Dallas. In Dallas. So, okay. Take Dallas. Tell us that story. So going on to the plane, we had learned of the possibility of a delay. And so I was prepared for that. Keep in mind throughout this whole time, I did not have a phone yet. I was told I'd receive my phone. Um, at the, once I arrived at my mission. 
So I landed at my layover and I asked um, at a desk like, oh, where can I find the gate for my next flight? And she looked it up and she said, actually, it's been canceled due to weather. And I just did not know what to do because I was this lone missionary without a phone, without any way of contacting my mission president, my family of where I was and what to do next. So I spent about the next couple hours wandering the airport until I found some other missionaries in the same boat as mine going to the same mission. Wow. Yeah. Tell us more. So then you've got a group that are trying to get to McAllen. Right. So now we're this group of five, um, two, two elders, including me and three sisters. So they had phones and our president had contacted them and said, we set up a hotel for you. Um, get an, or find an Uber or a way to transport there and you can stay the night there. Um, so the mission president had set up two different rooms in two different um, hotels for me and um, this other elder and the sisters. But again, due to the weather, there were powder outages. So our health, our hotel, me and my temporary companions was closed down. So we had already dropped off the sisters, but we had nowhere to stay. So we were freaking out, like, we can't stay with the sisters. We don't know what to do. So we texted them. And thankfully, the church had um, booked them two separate rooms. So we were okay. We drove back. It was just a long night. Um, but that week was actually really fun. It wasn't much to do since we just waited in a hotel room. Um, but it was so cool because nearby members in the area had learned of our story and how we were stranded and they reached out to us like, Oh, we'll take you to the grocery store. We'll get you groceries. If you need food, just let us know. And it was great. Yeah. And is this what month of 20, what month is this? This would be February. I yeah. believe, Cause it six weeks into my mission. So this is, I'm sort of thinking what was going on there. There is this major um, winter storm going through Texas. Right that the temperature in Dallas got well below 10 degrees, I think, or yeah, zero. And, and keep in mind, we didn't have our luggage either. So we were just wearing the same clothes we got in the plane on um, throughout the whole week. Yeah, I just remember seeing footage of Dallas and my our family lives in Houston and just the power outage. Yeah. Um, so you're living that reality. That makes more sense why it took a week. Because mm -hmm. I'm thinking a missed flight with a... Um, you know, a thunderstorm going over Dallas usually isn't a week. Wow. So you're in the middle of that major, sort of one of the biggest events that's ever happened in Texas. Yeah, but it was, it was a fun experience. It was interesting. How did you learn you could finally get to McAllen? Um, it was just through the other uh, missionaries I was with who had phones communicating with our mission president saying, we finally got you flight, um, be at the airport at this time, and um, we'll, we'll meet you when you land. That flight's not a very long flight. It no. It took seven days to take. <laughs> yeah, it was It was exciting getting on the plane again. And I realized you couldn't drive to McAllen because the roads are undrivable. It wouldn't be safe to drive, even no. if a member said, well, hey, I'll load you up in my van. And funny enough, And take actually, you to the McAllen, because that is something logistically could be done, but probably not a good idea given right. what was going on. And that was discussed because we actually ran into one of our mission president's counselors. We were stuck there. And so that was just, again, a funny coincidence. And he recommended the same thing, but wouldn't have been safe, you know? So, to, so now you're with this mission with lots of twists and turns and curves with a really unusual experience. I wonder what the longest church record is, Frazier, of someone who's 
left for a mission until they actually got there in modern days. Of course, when we used to take boats to England. <laughs> right. In the airfare, in the airline travel, it's a, a pretty unusual one, especially stateside. Yeah. Um, so talk. Yeah. So you're still doing any signs as you're looking back that your emotional health was um, not doing well in that seven days. Were you okay? Not at all. Um, growing up, I, I definitely had a harder time than other um, young men or just um, kids my age to get out there. So if anything, I was actually grateful. I, I thought that the Lord had set up the easiest way for me to ease into the mission life. Good. So first with at-home MTC and then a week stuck in Dallas where we just kind of hung out and played Uno in our hotel rooms. It's okay. And then then get to the real mission. I, I, I was actually grateful for it. I didn't, there were no signs of it. I think it's the right way to look at that versus, I think that's great. So talk about um, getting to the mission and just continue to tell your story. Yeah, so... Uh, we finally landed in McAllen and we were greeted with the mission president and the APs. And um, it was really cool. It was a cool experience. And it kind of hit me once we were on the drive with the APs to our apartment or to their house. Um, like, oh, I'm here. Like, I'm, I'm doing this now. I'm, I'm on the mission and I'm going to be finally doing what I've dreamed of doing for the longest time. Um, so me and this other elder who I was stranded with stayed for the night at the... Um, assistant president's house. And then tell us when you got your first companion, was it the next day and how that relation, how that area and how that companionship went? So I had learned of who my companion would be um, via a Zoom call in Dallas. And so I had finally met him the day after we landed. And it was just really cool. I, we greeted each other and you know, shook hands and we were super excited. He, I was going to be his first greenie that he trained. Um, and then he'd obviously be my first companion. And so then I met him. The zone leaders then drove us to our apartment. Um, they set me up and we got my stuff all loaded in and, um, yeah, so that was the first day I met him. And we just kind of took the, um, the little time we had before we started to get working, um, to get to know each other and just kind of talk. And as I got settled in, um, but yeah. Before we go further on this first transfer, how long did this first transfer last? The first transfer was six weeks. And you came home during the second transfer. Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So um, so you've got six weeks, and I, I think by the end of the six weeks, you're starting to feel some emotional, your emotional health's not where it is at the beginning of the six weeks. Right. So I knew that homesickness was going to be a part of the mission, just like every other um, sister or elder that goes out on a mission, I'm, I knew that homesickness was just a hill I had to get over. Um, but I noticed things started to go south when that homesickness didn't go away and things actually got worse rather than better. Um, in that six weeks, it not only was it mental health I noticed was deteriorating, it was my physical health. Um, I started to lose my appetite and then actually two weeks I had lost 15 pounds. Um, and I'm a relatively healthy young man. I've never had any severe health problems. So this was alarming. Um, I, I've always eaten well and on the mission I had suddenly dropped in weight and I just lost my appetite and was constantly missing home and just sad. And I, I felt stuck. 
you're doing a good job, Frazier. And I'm just writing down some words here because I think as a parent or as a local leader, even as a missionary, you're prepped for homesickness. <laughs> That's part of something we're pretty familiar with. I think a lot of missionaries talk about in their homecoming talks, your brother, yeah. family. So I, I think in my own mission, I can remember knowing that I had to kind of push through that homesickness and you're willing to push through that. But it sounds like you're connecting some dots. This is, I think, really important that this is more than homesickness. It, it was. And, and, um, the, the, and the loss of appetite, I, I'm not a therapist, but to me, that is different than homesickness. Right. Yeah. And losing weight um, and feeling this sadness. Talk more about just separating the homesickness, sickness, homesickness from the rest of what's going on with you. So, um, there on my P days, when I got to talk to my parents, I obviously shared with them weekly what was going on and they were understanding and they had just assumed it was homesickness and said, you know, can push through, um, you can do this. But so other than the drastic weight loss, there were other signs that I noticed that this wasn't normal. Um, one of which being the inability to feel the spirit. So me and my trainer had, we actually didn't have any trouble finding people to teach. We had, we had good luck and we found some, some people who were really invested in the church. Um, they progressed slowly, but they wanted to hear what we had. Um, and a few times after these amazing lessons, we would come out of their, um, their apartments and my, my companion would nudge me and say, like, oh, didn't you feel the spirit? That was amazing. That went so well. And I, I would pause for a second and tell him the truth. And I, I'd say like, no, I, I didn't feel anything. I, I can't. I don't know what's going on. Um, and then just, I would just break down randomly. And that wasn't something I would normally do before the mission. I mean, again, everybody has hard times and everybody cries, but I... I was depressed, you know, there were just moments where I would break down in my apartment with him and I'd be crying and I'd tell him like, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm being an obedient missionary. I'm following the rules. Um, I don't know why I feel like this. And he had encouraged me to reach out to our mission president's wife who in our mission um, handled this, this stuff. Right. So I had reached out to her and um, she just said like, she had um, advised me to set up a meeting with a therapist specifically for missionaries on the mission. Um, and so I had this meeting with her over a Zoom call. Um, and she said, it sounds like you're struggling with depression. Um, and if it gets severe enough to where it's suicidal, let your companion and let your church leaders know. Because that's not normal. And um, I agreed. and so. I, I tried to be hopeful. I prayed and I, I studied. I tried to do things I, you know, the missionaries are expected to do. And although I wasn't perfect, I, I followed the rules. Um, and so what really was the last straw for me was not long after where I was in, um, I was in the shower after a long day. Still in your first transfer? Yes, this is all my first transfer. And I just broke down. I just felt alone and um, I, I didn't have anywhere to escape to. I just felt stuck. And immediately thoughts of suicide came into my head. 
And I just knew that wasn't normal. I caught myself right after and I thought, this isn't right. Um, so I had let my companion know. And again, I, throughout this whole time, keep in mind, I was in close talk with my mission president's wife. And so there was this one day where we were proselyting um, and my, um, my companion got a call from my mission president's wife and she asked to give the phone to me. And so she asked, Frazier, I, I learned that you are having thoughts of suicide. Um, is that true? And I said, yes. And she said, Elder Perez, tell me honestly, do you feel that you need to go home? There is no shame in that. And I, I don't know why, but I felt shame in saying yes. Like I, I need to go home. Like I, 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 I don't know what else to do. Um, so then my mission president, um, was, um, doing everything he could to help me. He, so this is now towards the end of my first transfer. He had met with me and said, why don't we give this another try? Like, let's not jump the gun and I'll put you in a YSA ward with, um, in a trio and let's see if things get better. Right. Um, and so that was the case. I, I was then transferred to a YSA ward, which was amazing. I met some great people who I'm still in contact with and, um, my companions were understanding. Um, but things didn't really get better. They're, they're pretty stagnant. Um, so about two or three weeks into that transfer, I had received my itinerary to go home. Um, and that was, that was difficult because it wasn't a successful return home. It wasn't, I had completed the two years I had learned, you know, everything the Lord wanted me to learn. And it was time. It was, it was early. It was an early homecoming. Um, that was very emotional for me. Frazier, just thanks for the courage to share your story. It takes a lot of courage just to talk about your hard parts of your life that yeah. some ways you don't want to talk about, but I think talking about takes the shame and helps other people. Um, did your, I have a few questions that come to mind. Did your mission mom proactively ask you if you were suicidal or did you bring that up for the first time? Um, I think I had, looking back, I, I don't remember. It had been some time ago. Um, but I, I had brought it up first to my companion and then I had mentioned it to the therapist, but then I, but then my mission president's wife had asked me. So I don't think I had directly told her before. I think she had asked me first. Um, the first time I had shared thoughts of suicide was when, um, me and my trainer were having lunch in our apartment and I had briefly mentioned it and he just paused and asked me like, wait, what did you say? Cause he was very caught off guard. He didn't really, he didn't realize it was that severe. Um, and his reaction to it better helped me realize that it wasn't something to take lightly. That's cool. Um, there's actually a lot of really cool things that happened in this story. Um, that you talk to your companion, that's the, that's after the shower and the breakdown in the shower. Yeah. And you talk to your companion just, and you told him, by feelings of suicide and he stopped the conversation and wanted to talk about it versus not talk about it. Right. Um, and I, it, it helped, it, it did help a little bit to talk about it. Um, obviously the feelings were still there, but 
it, it helped to know I wasn't alone and people knew what I was going through and I, I had that support. Um, my, my family was, was there to support me, my companion. Um, it, it was, was helpful. I, listeners, I just think as, you know, normalizing discussions around suicide helps people that have suicide thoughts be able to open up. And I think it's fine in mission prep or in young men's and young women's and just church circles as Sister Roberto in her conference talk, talking about talking about suicide doesn't increase the likelihood that someone is going to become suicidal, but it may communicate that you're a safe person for them to open up to. And so it takes a lot of courage for you to go from the feelings of that shower to being able to open up to a companion, a therapist, your mission mom, and family members. And I think that's a great ministering story that's going on where you need the help you need to get through. What Go back to, uh, so you've taught this lesson and your companion nudges you and said, well, didn't you feel the spirit? And you're, uh, what did you conclude in your brain or your heart that you didn't feel the spirit? Did you think that was a spiritual weakness that, or did you recognize that was an emotional, your emotional health was in such a bad place you couldn't feel the spirit? I'm just trying to take you back yeah. to that moment, what you were concluding that about your experience at first i thought it was a spirit a spiritual weakness because before the mission yes i had spiritual experiences but i i always felt it was a little more difficult for me to feel the spirit than others um and i i just thought you know that's the way i am but then i, I when i realized like the lessons we were having people saying yes and wanting to commit to baptism I should be feeling the spirit in some sort of way. And I wasn't. Um, yes, I did have spiritual experiences that were amazing. And I greatly cherish now some being um, dinners with this amazing member family that would feed us dinner every Sunday. Um, they're just angels on earth. Um, I, I love them dearly for how much love they showed us. And their home felt like home to, to me. And so it, it was a safe place. And I also, looking back, remember there were lessons that I felt the spirit and that I did, um, that I, I did enjoy. And I also like want to make it clear, like I, I did engage in the lessons. I didn't let my trainer do all the talking. I, I did uh, grow up in a Hispanic home. So Spanish wasn't completely foreign to me. So I understood what was being said and I understood how to say some things, not all, but I was engaged in the lesson and just it was, at first I thought it was normal, but then considering the events and the things that we had the, the opportunity to, um, to encounter, it wasn't normal. Um, you know, I'm going back to the relationship with your parents because you've got great parents. Um, they have some experience with a son serving a mission. You're the second son, but I'm th I'm thinking this as a parent because we've had a kid. Our youngest son really struggled on his mission with his emotional health, and our oldest son didn't. But that was back in the day when we just got letters. So if he were struggling with his emotional health, the letter turnaround time would have been forever to sort of. But now with FaceTime or however you were communicating with your family, it's I think that's one of the things that's really helped is that families parents can better understand the emotional health of their missionaries because they have this direct contact. That can be alarming, though, because parents then are more aware 
Right. But it could yeah. also be life-saving and some life-helping, life-saving. Talk about how much were you telling your parents about the true state of your emotional health? Or were you kind of keeping that for a period of time with your therapist and your mission mom? So I, I had kept my parents updated on um, things that were happening as they were happening. So every week on P-Day, I would keep them updated. Um, and they would listen and um, it, it was new for them. Like, like it was new for me. It was a different area that none of us had ever experienced before. So at first they, they were, and again, I understand because they had never been in my shoes. They were confused. You know, they didn't really understand what it was really like to have these thoughts and to, to feel this emotion of depression constantly. Um, but, um, over time they began to, um, understand it more the same way I did because I was learning it with them. You know, this isn't something I necessarily was experienced on looking back. I, it's possible that I had struggled with this in middle school, but I don't know because I never received professional help. Um, and I, I always just thought I was, you know, a middle school kid finding his personality and growing up, going through puberty and. Um, it was a part of life, but looking back, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of depression and mixed in there, um, which is why it makes my mission experience less of a surprise because mission life is different from normal life, right? Um, so this like sudden change in how you live day to day can definitely bring up suppressed depression, I, I believe because it happened to me. Um, again, I don't know if I struggled with it before, but knowing how I am, I wouldn't be surprised if I struggled with it when I was younger. It's a good insight. Did you talk to your parents about feelings of suicide? I did. Um, and again, that was hard. It, it was hard to tell your parents, hey, I, I have these thoughts and I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I, I don't want that to happen. I don't want to hurt myself. Um, and you know, of course it's not good news. They were, they were sad to hear it. Um, and they, they were praying for me throughout all of this. Um, why did you tell them that? Cause some people wouldn't, they would yeah. keep that from their parents. They wouldn't want to worry their parents. They mm -hmm. would keep that from them. I, I love my parents, um, very dearly and they love me and they've made that apparent. Um, they love me and my brothers all, all the same. Um, I just, I knew that they were a safe place I could turn to. Um, and I think that's, what's really important. So people who know of, or are close with somebody who struggles with these sort of, um, challenges, make sure that you're a safe place that they can turn to, um, just an, an ear to, to listen or a shoulder to lean on. To I don't know if your parents are listening. I think it's a credit to both of you that somehow you've created this family culture that your son could tell you the reality of his situation and that you were safe to do that. Even though he knew it would be hard for you to hear that, he needed you in his life and he needed you to know the reality of his situation. And as a parent, that's what I hope my kids will do is they will tell me the reality of their situation and feel like I'm a safe place. 
But for you to be able to open up to your parents about that to me is a beautiful part of your family story. Thank you. Yeah. It's a credit to you that you were um, self-aware of yourself and hum- and perhaps even humble enough to say, I need help. Yeah. Sometimes culturally, we and I've got tears in my eyes thinking about this, listeners. Culturally, sometimes we've we'll figure I'll figure this out on my own. I'm not going to bother anybody with my situation. It just everybody. It's going to add to everybody's burden. Mm-hmm. I think it's a credit to you that you knew you needed help and you were humble enough to ask for help. And you recognize that's part of the plan um, that we need each other. We're not meant to figure everything out on our own. Yeah. Um, I just parents that are worried about their kids on their mission. I think it's okay to ask them about, you know, if you recognize, recognize your kid as anxiety or depression is maybe sharing some of that, there may be deeper stuff going on that he's not sure mm-hmm. or he's, or she's not sure. And so I think you can always just say, you know, if you have feelings of suicide, um, that's something you could always tell me. You could ask them kind of vaguely like that or just lay a framework. You could even before your kid leaves on a mission or you could do this just in your family circle, regardless of a mission, starting at age whatever, 10, that, hey, if anybody in this family is having feelings of suicide in any situation, um, that's, that conversation isn't going to cause your kids to increase the chance they're going to have suicide. It just n- helps them know that mom and dad are a safe place to turn to. Yeah. And not just parents, but siblings too. Um, my older brother definitely was a safe place for me when I was younger. So like I had mentioned before, where middle school was hard for me, whether or not that was depression for sure, I don't know. But my older brother definitely was there for me. There were nights where I was up crying and although it was late, he, he sat there and let me talk and he let me um, be someone to, to depend on. Um, and so, yeah, I'm lucky to have the siblings that I do. So, um, they, they've just been a blessing to me as well. And this is, this is tough stuff. I mean, we've, I have a book coming out, um, in March and one of the chapters is our own son's journey with scrupulosity, which is different than your experience, but it led him to some of the same feelings. He got in a really, really dark place and we had some of these same conversations with him. And we felt like eventually he was in a safe enough place emotionally to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID brought him home after nine months. Um, and that sort of then got him. But he was, you know, he'd made some real progress. And I recognize every story is different. But yeah, yeah, it was a difficult experience as a family, but in some ways a, a beautiful experience as a family as we just came together. Um. You said in your secondary year in a YSA ward, you got an itinerary, you're coming home. Did you know that was coming? Had the decision been made, you're going home, and then the itinerary came to confirm that, or did that come as a surprise one day? So, yes, that, that I knew that was coming, but it still was bitter, um, bittersweet news to receive that, because I knew it would help me, but I just didn't want to return home yet. I hadn't completed my two-year mission. Um, so... I was again in close talk with my um, mission president's wife and um, my family. And it just overall, the conclusion was I should return home, but not everyone was on board. Um, And that's again, what made it, I would lie if I said it didn't make it more difficult. Um, One of 
my mission leaders had told me, and I won't forget this. He had said to me, let me know when you want to give up. And it was hard to hear that because I, it wasn't a matter of wanting to give up. This was something that I had looked forward to my entire life. And now being here, it was hard that I couldn't, I couldn't do, I couldn't fulfill it. You know, I couldn't complete it. Um, wow. So that's painful. It was. And I, I, I just urge again, any church leaders or family members like be understanding. Um, it's, it's not something that can necessarily be controlled. It's not a matter of giving up. It, it's hard. Um, was there kind of a final event that led to coming home? Um, or was it just kind of the cumulative reality of, you know, we've tried everything we can. Um, you're not getting better. Um, it's time to go home. It was just a culmination of all the events that had occurred. Um, it was just a realization that although the mission should be difficult and um, it will spiritually stretch you and let you grow. Um, the Lord wouldn't ask me to go through what I went through. Now, he wouldn't ask anybody of that. Um, so yes, although it was hard, it was also realization that it was, it had crossed the boundary of too difficult. I love your, the words, the Lord would not require me to do something like that. I agree. And I think you're intuitive enough to recognize and have a good enough relationship with Christ to know that. And this is not a spiritual weakness. This is not a lack of desire. It's a reality of your situation. And you're right. Yeah. The Lord would not require you to do this. He wants you to get better so you can get on with your life. I agree, yeah. Um, other things that were said that were, I mean, part of this podcast is when we know better, we do better. So we're kind of honest sometimes without trying to make anybody in particular feel bad. <laughs> um, we always cross a careful line there, but um, I'll maybe get back to that question, but I want you to, you know, what was it like to return home? I assume you did not have a seven day layover in Dallas. I don't no. know. If, I don't know if you connected through Dallas. <laughs> I, I did have, um, I did have another layover if I remember correctly, but then no, I was not okay. stuck. Um, so I, I got home and, um, I was greeted with my family and my mom hugged me and it was a tender moment. Um, I, I, you know, just looking back, it was finally, it, it was sweet to hug my mom again um, and to physically be in that safe spot again. Um, so we drove home. The airport was about an hour from our house and I met with my state president. And so his son had struggled with similar um, difficulties and so he was understanding um and um it 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 was hard um other than the initial return home i there were the looks and there was the the feeling of um disappointment from my home ward um i can't tell you how difficult it is to return home early and walk in to your home ward and have to you know explain to everybody or you know, everybody greets you. Oh, hi! It, it's it's been a minute to see you, and you know, it it's hard. I, I I could feel the looks. I could feel the judgment, and that's just something I I I hope would change, and I I want to change because we don't know why 
a sister or an elder returned home. It could be for a number of reasons. And, I, and I've been there. I, I've judged. And it, we're, we're not in any place to, to do that. Um, we don't understand somebody's um, struggles and, until we've been there. Um, but yeah. Talk about um, things that were said that were good. Give advice to people that want to be prepared when you walk through the door to, to say the right thing or do the right thing or give the right look. Any suggestions just to make that experience better? So I had received um, a handful of phone calls um, from church leaders in my home stake calling me and just saying, Frazier, I am proud of you. I know that the Lord is proud of you. Wow. And it, it, it was very emotional for me and it was special for me because those people, although they didn't understand where I was, they were kind. And um, I had members who had went through similar struggles on their missions reach out to me and said, if you need somebody to talk to, I'm here. I know where you've been. I've walked those same steps. You can talk to me. Um, so just being a understanding and friendly person reaching out saying, Hey, I'm proud of you. We love you. We really helped. Um, and it, it did wonders when it comes to feeling better about myself and the overall recovery process at home. What were things people said that weren't helpful? Um, so I had briefly touched on it, but a church leader had said, let me know when you want to give up. And that, that did not help because it, I had, as I stated, it wasn't a matter of giving up. Um, and although nothing was said, but the looks given and just, I could just feel the attention I was getting walking in to church early um, or having returned early. Um, just, I think what can change that is just, again, remembering that we don't know what's going on. We don't know what they're struggling with. And that's not up to us. I've seen some church leaders conducting the meeting, like a bishop or even a stick president, step forward and sort of address the elephant in the room, so to speak, and welcome home Elder Perez and sort of take the lead of what we, sh you know, express his feelings about you being back. Um, I've heard some missionaries have really liked that, and some missionaries have been embarrassed for the attention that that is. Yeah. I don't know if any of that happened for you or if you would have liked that idea. Any I counsel to local leaders about sort of welcoming you home or calling attention or do you just want to sit on the back row and not even hear your name? So I, I never got that call to attention to me. Um, and I actually didn't know that. That's actually, um, that, that's news for me. I didn't know that some church leaders did that. I, I think that it's up to the individual. I think some would, would appreciate that and appreciate the love from those leaders. And I think others would, would prefer the, uh, staying in the shadows, so to speak. Um, for me personally, I, I don't know. I wouldn't know how I feel about it until I was in that spot. Um, but um, whether or not it was public, definitely feeling the love and um, appreciation from leaders especially helped. Do you still remember the name of the leaders? You don't need to say it, but yeah. do you remember who texted you that week bef before you came to church? I do, and I, I won't forget them. Um, they have a special place in my heart. There's a gold nugget in there. 
you know, and I think if we want to let someone know, you know, if we hear they come home on a Wednesday, they're going to be at church on a Sunday is to get word to them that I love the words that these leaders use. I love, I am proud of you and the Lord is proud of you. And I believe that's absolutely true. And I think um, to make the Sunday experience better, perhaps, you know, this is something I've never thought to do is to reach out to somebody before Sunday. Yeah. And send them that message because I know that if they then saw me on Sunday, they know how I feel about them and I'd be a safe person for them. Right. And they wouldn't be wondering about me and how I feel. And and then I've seen some, you know, in our stake, our stake president's done a wonderful job a couple of times of, you know, just, you know, um, and so I think a stake or a bishop or a stake president could even talk to you, Frazier. In it, and this can't be done for you and say, would it be helpful if, you know, I just welcomed you publicly and shared my feelings about you or would you rather not have any attention? So that could be something that could be processed with the missionary. Oh, for sure. I, before I, on Sunday, because some missionaries might enjoy that just to have the cover a bishop or stake president could give them. Mm-hmm. I've even seen a stake president raise his hand. Now, this isn't a, a handbook thing, but he just says, I... Anybody would like to join with me in welcoming home elder so-and-so, please raise your hand. And to see that whole congregation with their hands raised for that missionary was deeply moving. Now, I'm not saying, listeners, let's start a new thing here. Right. But there's nothing that was not against any handbook thing. It was just an inspired moment to Mm -hmm. a visual imagery to how that ward felt about that family. Yeah, and I I, I don't see how that would do more harm. I, I agree. And church leaders, it would help to reach out and say, Hey, how would you like me to handle this? Do you want to keep it secret or public or, you know, and just, yeah, I don't see the hurt in it. The other thing I've tried to do listeners is when a missionary comes home is, is spend my mental energy trying to think of what I can do to lift them versus trying to understand the backstory of why they're home. There's all these reasons someone comes home, and sometimes we can rank them in our minds like, oh, if you tore your ACL, we under, we get that. Um, yeah, of course you had to come home. Maybe on one end of the spectrum, um, and the other end of the spectrum is, you know, an infield mess up or a belated confession, and basically you're coming home because of a worthiness issue. And mm-hmm. culturally, that's kind of on another end of the spectrum. And I've, and maybe there's a part of our brain that wants to know the backstory, but I think it's none of our business, and I think it keeps us from ministering and lifting the burdens of others, and we shouldn't treat you any different regardless of the reason you came home. If mm-hmm. it was a torn ACL or you messed up in the mission field, you, I think you need to feel the love of your congregation in that critical right. time. Any yeah. thoughts on that? No, I, I agree. I don't think that your, like the severity of the reason to return home should equal the, the number of or the amount of love you wow. you receive. You said that a lot better than I did. <laughs> I think that's the way Christ would treat us, Frazier. So talk about um, being home. Did your mental health, sometimes that doesn't immediately solve your emotional health mm-hmm. um, because you're still dealing with that, but sometimes it's the, it clearly makes an improvement. And it, so talk about coming home. So things didn't necessarily immediately improve. Um, it, was slightly better, but it wasn't night and day. Um, the depression that I had struggled with on the mission, I think looking back was more of the shock of missionary life and just 
being thrown out of my home life. And then the depression I struggled with coming home was having to deal with the fact I returned early with, without wanting to. So it was depression for two different reasons. Um, but once I was home, we um, reached out to a, a professional doctor and I took a questionnaire, um, you know, and he would ask me questions basically on one to 10, how do I feel in this way or et cetera. And so we got to the suicidal question. And obviously my response for that wasn't necessarily positive. I had, I was honest and said it was something I struggled with. And so when we had finished the questionnaire, he said, that's, that's what we want to focus on. We want that number to go down to zero. Um, so I was prescribed some medicine. Um, and that was something I um, took. And along with the medicine, I took six courses with a therapist. Um, and she was great. She was really helpful. Um, so not only was the medical part of it what helped, it was also the spiritual. You know, looking back and seeing why and how I got better, it reminds me of the the story of um like I don't know if it's a true story. It may just be a a a little short cute story with a moral, but of um somebody, you know, asking a a church leader to pray or bless their crops that they can grow, but they haven't done any work for it. Basically faith that that works is dead, right? So I, I had done my part of going to a doctor, receiving therapy, taking medicine, and I had also prayed and studied and asked for help. And so a combination of both the spiritual and the medical part had both helped me to get better. And it, it wasn't immediate. It was several months um, and it was slow and steady. Um, there were times where I, I, you know, I crashed. It was ups and down. It wasn't a steady uphill. It, it, it was a roller coaster of emotion back home as well. That's helpful. There's a lot of hope in that. And you're very self-aware of your own journey and connecting dots that I think is helpful as you share with others. Did people at church say, when are you going back, Frazier, and sort of make the narrative about instead of getting you better, letting you sort of self-determine your best path forward, did people in your life say sort of, you know, the goal here is to get you back? And I don't know. And I don't know if that happened and if that was helpful to you or triggering for you or. It, it did happen. Um, and I was expecting it. Um, I did have church leaders come up to me and say, you know, there's always a service mission or hey, so when are you coming or when are you going back? And then I had others that were more understanding. Um, it wasn't necessarily, I know they had good intention. Um, but it wasn't necessarily helpful because it made me feel more pressure um, from others around me. Because not only was I home, but then I realized, oh, now I have the pressure of going back out. Um, and um, it, it was hard. Um, and it's something that I still struggle with today. Um, but yeah, it, it was something I was talked to about by several individuals. How do you, do you call yourself a return missionary? When people say, did you serve a mission? What do you say? It, you know, it, it was weird at first. Um, cause I, after I had gone back 
from my mission. A couple months later, me and my family moved up to Utah. So here in Utah, I had met some people and, you know, I got to know people as I got a job and, you know, just met people day to day. And they would ask, oh, like, did you serve a mission or how old are you? Um, and so when they would ask if I had served a mission, it, it was weird the first couple of times. I almost like stuttered saying, I, I, I did. But it, deep down, I didn't believe myself. I just said it because it was a new beginning, a fresh start in a new area, a new life. And I just didn't want to deal with that judgment. Honest. Yeah. But nowadays, I'm, I'm happy to say I'm a little more confident in saying I, I am a returned missionary. It's, it's still something I'm, I'm trying to, to feel proud of and convince myself of, but I'm, I'm getting there. It's a delicate question to ask you. I thought you could handle it because um, <laughs> I'm sure you've processed it. And I invite us listeners just to not look at return missionary label based on length of time served, but based on the desire of their heart. And you certainly accepted that call and did the very best you can. And I think, I think our Savior would call you a return missionary and know you did your very best. And your mission continues with just the things you've learned and your ability now to help people in a way you never would have been able to help. So it's complicated a little bit because I don't know when, you know, I just think you're a return missionary. And I think it's, and and it's a little awkward at 19 saying you're a return missionary because people go, wait a second. Yeah, I definitely. And I think when you're 25 and, you know, you know, there may be times when someone said, tell me more about your mission. And in a one-on-one situation, you can kind of tell the story or send for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think you're doing a good job. And I would encourage all of you that are, I don't need, some people like the label early release. Some people don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a better label is just call everybody return missionary. I use that just to, so people know the kind of topic. Do you like the topic? Do you like early release? Is that triggering for you? Um, it's not triggering for me, but it definitely is a title I'm getting used to. Um, and I, I think, I think it's not something to be ashamed of because just like missionaries who nowadays have returned home because of COVID, um, and it was not in their control the same way missionaries who returned home for health reasons that was not in their control, they should not be looked at differently. Um, and like you said, I like what you said, it doesn't matter the length of time, the longer you are on a mission doesn't make it more valuable or more worthy. If you accepted a call and you went out with the desire to go and you were worthy, then it it's as equal to somebody who completed a full two years. What have you learned that, what Christ-like attributes do you think you've refined because of this experience? I've learned that I don't need a missionary name tag to help people. Um, you touched on it briefly just a second ago. and. Um, I learned from this entire experience that a mission is a lifetime calling. Now, although you may not go out every day teaching the gospel door to door, what you can do is take any opportunity to serve or to be kind and to be an example, to be a good neighbor, a minister, et cetera. Um, I've, I haven't been the best example at it because, you know, life's busy and I'm, um, preparing for college, but I, I would like to think I'm I'm helpful when I get the opportunities to, and I I take the the chances to serve when I can, and um, I encourage everybody to do that. Even 
missionaries who had completed their mission. It doesn't end after that. I love that. We don't need a name tag. And, you know, you're not married. I think you're dating right now, but I would hope, and you can talk about this as much as you want to, but just, I would, I used to have a checklist listeners of all the things I wanted in my wife when I was in my twenties. And I realized after a while, the checklist mentality was flawed because I was looking for the Christ-like attributes that I thought the checklist represented. And I wanted to marry return missionary wife, woman, wife, same thing, I guess. And then I dated enough women that didn't serve missions to recognize they had the Christ-like attributes that I was looking for. And frankly, I dated some return missionary women that didn't have some of the Christ-like attributes <laughs> that I was looking for. Yeah. So I, I, I just invite us not to have this checklist mentality if we're dating that my future spouse has to have all these checks because it may prevent us from marrying the very person that God wants us to marry and is the person that would best be compatible with us. And I have that in a little bit in that my upcoming book coming out this spring um, as part of this section about missionaries. But I would hope your future wife and your future family, especially your in-law family, would not look at this experience and and you shouldn't marry into this family if they do um, (laughs) in any way of a negative thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think it makes you in some ways, there'll be paydays, Frazier, for you because of this experience with your own children. And you'll just be able to get them things. And your wife will just know, dad can handle this. I hope so. Maybe she can handle it too. But yeah. And your wife will know that you're a safe place for her whatever she's working through and that'll be the culture of your family. And you've learned this at a long age, you've learned vulnerability and honesty and working through shame and authentic connection, just really important things at age 19. Yeah. So I think you're in a great spot going forward. Um, any thoughts on any of that? Um, no, I, I agree. Um, I hope that the, um, my future wife and my, my in-laws are understanding and proud of my experience the same way my, my immediate family is. Um, and like you said, if they're not, then that's probably not the family I should be associating with. <laughs> well said. And um, we read this quote about every 10 podcast listeners. It's from my friend Jake Watts in Manhattan. If you're in the Manhattan, some married ward in Manhattan, see Jake Watts. Tell him thank you for this quote. But um, it's called The Wounded Healer by Henry Norwin. And a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. And you, Frazier, know this desert, and it makes you a wounded healer, and it makes you a leader, and it makes you be able to authentically go with others in sort of sister desert sometimes. They may not have gone through the exact experience you've gone through on your mission, but you'll get it, and you'll be safe for them and helpful for them. And so we're all wounded healers, but I think sometimes we're not vulnerable and we're not honest and And I think vulnerability and authentic connection allows us to help others. So I really appreciate you coming forward and um, being on the podcast, Frazier. This helps a lot of people. Um, And it just gives us hope and better understanding, takes the shame. There should be no shame 
in your story or anybody's story. Thank you. Yeah. And there should be no feelings of shame in the congregation. Mm-hmm. We're all just doing our best and there should be no judgment. My wife and I went to a funeral of a wonderful young man who tragically died in our stake, Josh Johnson, age 28, in a car accident this week and died a couple of weeks ago. But one of the key themes of his life is no judgment and more compassion and more love. And I just want to be more like Josh and that that our chapel was just filled like it. I've never seen it filled because of the love this kid had for everybody. And he was a compassionate, empathetic, kind, judgment-free person. And so many people's are loved, lives are better because of his Christ-like attributes. And um, anyway, that's all I have to say. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share, Frazier? Um, I'm, I'm happy to share my story and I, I hope it resonates with some people and lets them know that they're not alone. There are people out there that understand what they've been through. Let me now, sorry, listeners, a question came into my mind. Tell me, did some missionaries go through a faith crisis or um, it becomes difficult on their testimony? Some don't during this process. Their testimony is strong before they left. Their testimony is strong while they're serving. Their testimony is strong now. Any of that you want to share with our listeners? Um, about my testimony personally. Yeah, did it change at all? Did it strengthen? Did it weaken? Did you question it? Just anything you want to share on those that area? I was blessed to look at this all in a positive light. And um, I, I can happily say it strengthened my testimony. And I have a greater love for all the missionaries serving right now. I have a greater love for all of those who come home and completed their mission. Um, it's difficult and I'm, I'm proud of every single one of them. And I, I love, I love the gospel. I thought you'd answer that that way. Just so, um, great job, Frazier, Frazier Perez and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn and Love. <laughs>